Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you via the Secret Library Podcast Patreon. To check it out and become a supporter, you can visit us at patreon.com slash secret library. This is episode 127 of the Secret Library podcast. My guest this week is Ada Palmer. She is a historian, an author of science fiction and fantasy, and a composer. She teaches in the history department at the University of Chicago. And I could have had an entire series of episodes with Ada, and I'm so excited to have her on. Anyone who has been talking to me about what I've been reading lately has been barraged with insistence that they must read her Tarek Noda series, which we discussed today. I am perpetually fascinated with the historical reinterpretation or historical questioning arenas of science fiction. And this series in, in particular opens so many wonderful questions. And I was very eager to talk to Ada about the process of mining history in order to write about potential futures. So there's a lot, a lot to talk about in this episode. I know you're really going to love it. So let's get right to it. Here we go with Ada Palmer. Hey, Ada, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. So as we were talking before recording, I did say my my one concern is that we could probably do about five episodes and not just one episode, because there are so many interesting aspects of writing that I could talk about with you. But the one that I wanted to start with is your series has an unusual take on science fiction. And because you are a professor of the history of ideas, correct? Mm-hmm then that you've taken that into the world of fiction. And I find this really fascinating. So I'm wondering if you could tell everyone listening a little bit about the series and the idea that brought you to write it. Uh, so I guess it would have to be ideas plural. Um, I'll <laughs> describe a bit of premise, but then I'll flip over to what, what you're hinting at with the history stuff. So uh, Terra Ignota takes place in the 25th century. Uh, and in this future, there's a system of super fast self-driving flying cars that can get you from anywhere on Earth to anywhere else on Earth in about two hours. So it's perfectly normal to live in the Bahamas and work in Tokyo and have a lunch meeting in Paris. And your spouse also lives in the Bahamas and works in Antarctica and has a large meeting in Toronto. And this is no problem. But what I'm interested in is less the technology than the social consequences of the technology. And in particular, once that technology has been in place for a couple generations, and we're looking a number of generations into how that's developed, it's going to completely transform identity and nationality and the way people think about which group of people in the world is us. Uh, because right now, all of our political systems are geographic and they're based on where you happen to be born, or in the case of a very, very few kids whose parents are overseas in an embassy or something, uh, then paperwork will be filed to try to get those kids the citizenship parents and not the citizenship that they were born or possibly both. Uh, but the norm is 
to be assumed that the place that you're born is going to be a big political determinant of your identity, which as people start to live more and more all over the place, will make less and less sense, as indeed it's already making less sense, thanks to institutions such as the European Union, which allow for so much movement of people. So a few generations into having this system, people stopped feeling that the spot they happened to be born should have anything to do with their political identities. And nations transitioned from being geographic to being non-geographic, but still extant. So there is still Spain and there is still France, but it's the people who believe themselves to be part of that identity, living diasporically all over the world, who share that identity and therefore have that be the political system to which they pay taxes and whose rules they are governed by. So you might live next door to people living under a completely different legal system from your own. The local town will still have local town ordinances like any town does, but it means everybody upon coming of age chooses which nation in the world best reflects that person's identities, values, and what laws that person desires and respects. And then you sign up for that nation. And we have a free mixing of diasporic communities with two big consequences, well, lots. But one is that no one ever grows up as part of a majority. Everyone always grows up as a part of a minority surrounded by other minorities because there's so much mixing in the world. Another major consequence is that we now have a buyer's market for citizenship in which people choose among countries and countries therefore are sort of competing for citizens because they want the tax revenue and they want the greater power of having more citizens. So countries work really hard to make their <clears throat> laws and their rules desirable and make and appeal to people. And people can, if you don't like the direction your country turns, 24 hours you sign up for a different country which is excited to have you and to have the power and revenue that you represent. So uh, governments are therefore much more accountable to people because one problem that we face right now is that if your country is going in a direction that you don't like very much, you don't have the option to choose a different country that you like better without you know, months and years of paperwork and complexity and often being uprooted from the community in which you live. Uh, so just, you know, it's easy to vote for a different party, but it's not easy to vote for a different country, if you see what I mean. Uh, but it's such a future where you, the citizen, decide of what you are a citizen. Uh, you can. And so it makes the governments have to be more answerable to their people. Yes. This is so fascinating to me. Um, and I think the other part of the story that I really love mm -hmm. as I'm, I'm reading through the books is the way that religion is changed in your world as well, which is really fascinating that there's a character who's able to speak to that when someone talks to them about religion, it, they aren't necessarily speaking from one perspective. They're sort of trained to hold all of them and then to respond to the person's needs rather than to sort of try to fit them into the religion. Yeah, so there's a kind of theological counselor profession called a sensayer, which is somewhere between a priest and a personal therapist, uh, whose job it is that you sit down with them and explore different religious ideas and talk through your own ideas. And they are supposed to give you books to read from all different theisms and atheisms and philosophies over time and help you develop your own personal religiosity. Uh, now, the, uh, the religion in the book is one of the arenas that I carefully crafted to spark these debates, which I see between readers all the time, where the world sometimes feels like a utopia and it sometimes feels like a dystopia. 
And in particular, its policy on religion to some readers feels like exactly what they've always wanted. And to other people feels oppressive and totalitarian, which is a, a line I balanced very carefully. So uh, this future believes that the majority of major wars in earth history have been caused by organized religion, by churches. And we hear about another world war that came after the world wars we've had, which they referred to as the church war, and which seems to have been perhaps even more devastating than the earlier ones. That was a major formative moment for this future, after which they've banned organized religion, but they intentionally foster personal religion. So it's illegal to have something like a church. And if you want to have a group discussion of theology, you have to have one of these state licensed senseiers there supervising to sort of make sure that it isn't being uh, dangerous and potentially fomenting war. And uh, but everybody is encouraged to have private religion and everybody is paired with one of these people that you meet with who in a very unmanipulative or as unmanipulative as you can way guides everyone through their personal religiosity. What this policy does to readers is that for people for whom, you know, the ideal of religiosity is holding your own independent values and having religious freedom. What religious freedom means is deciding for yourself what you want and not having proselytizers shoving things down your throat. This sounds perfect because there's no religion mixed in politics. There's nobody trying to force anything on anyone. On the other hand, to people for whom religion is majorly about community, right? It feels incredibly oppressive that you, you can't have a bar mitzvah. You can't have an Easter gathering because these things are banned under the bans on uh, group religiosity. And you know, over the course of the books, you get tiny hints about how does the Jewish community resolve this? What do they do to be able to continue to have group events without violating these laws? Uh, but it's a mixture and it's intended to sort of push and polarize people and get them to feel as if they're in a sort of creepy valley that's partly utopian. And many elements of the world are like that, which is what you asked about my work on history. Because I work a lot on history of ideas, and especially in the Enlightenment, which is a major source. I look at the history of people who have self-consciously tried to make the future be different from the past, who have self-consciously said, okay, we're going to change X about our society to make it better than it is now. The Enlightenment figures like Voltaire and Diderot are trying to do this. They're trying to spread universal education. They're trying to make People hold more rational values. They're trying to spread scientific and technical knowledge to empower the broader populace. And they are thinking of this as a future building, trying to make the future be better than the present. This is true, though, in different ways of the Italian Renaissance, which I also work on. Petrarch and Bruni and Poggio Bartoli are trying to um, rediscover the lost arts of antiquity and disseminate them so that their world, which they think of as a dark and fallen one, will rise again to have the technologies and political systems that may be a golden age again in their imagination. And if you look at these projects of past future builders and then ask yourself, if you brought that person forward in time 400 years, how would that person feel? So if we brought Voltaire forward in time, even 200 years to where we are right now and showed him the present, I think it would feel very much like our my novels feel to us, which is a lot of things that he worked for would be here. And we do have much more universal education and we have a lot more uh, uh, 
educational opportunities for women, and uh, we have much more uh, advanced technology, and we have a much longer lifespan, and we've cured all of these diseases that seemed impossible in his period. He was a major campaigner for vaccination against smallpox, uh, so he would be overjoyed to see that we have conquered smallpox entirely and have made great advances on other diseases. But on the other hand, you know, he was living in the age of great empires and Europe spreading its culture all around. I think he would be weirded out by the absence of, or the, 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 the fact that we're in a sort of aftermath of that. And we now at least overtly describe that as a negative period in history. I think he would be uncomfortable with the way France's pattern, uh, sorry, France's hegemony in Europe has been shattered and is no longer what it was in the 18th century. And I, you know, lots of elements of our present would feel weird and uncomfortable to him, even against the backdrop of others that felt good. And then further, others would feel depressingly the same. So he campaigned, you know, he campaigned fiercely for the abolition of torture and for an end to religious war. And so if he came here and saw that we're still having problems with both of these things, that felt in his own lifetime as if they were almost solved, <laughs> he would feel so upset that even another two centuries didn't get to what it felt like he was on the way. So I wanted in Ignota to build a future that would feel to us the way our present would feel to Voltaire. And I think that's an important thing for us to take on because the desire to actively build a better future is very, very present. <laughs> In, in most of us right now, especially those of us who are interested in science fiction, but you know, we're excited by technology's progress. We're excited by making uh, improvements to medicine. Also excited by making improvements to society and pushing society in a kinder, more empathetic, more inclusive direction. But the future we're building will not look like what we imagine, nor will it hold all of our values. It will hold maybe 40% of our values, right? And, and others of our values, it will have moved past. And yet others of our values, it will never have adopted. And it will be this mixture of partly what we want and partly things that are uncomfortable because future building is also the process of disassembling and destroying the present in which we live. And if you were a time traveler and went forward, you would not be comfortable. There would be things whose absence would be uncomfortable. I wanted to make a future that would feel like that so that my readers would taste what I think Voltaire would have tasted or Diderot would have tasted if you brought them forward to the present and then asked them to question, was it worth it? You gave your life to working to making a better future. You could have lived an easier life in which you didn't dedicate your midnight hours and midnight oil to this project. This is what you got out of it. How do you feel about your choice to spend your time that? Because that's something we need to ask ourselves as well and and see whether we come out of it with the conviction, even if the future isn't the future where I would be comfortable. I still want to work to build a future. Yes, I love this idea. And I, I love how it uses fiction as a way to engage with history and also to think about the impact our actions will have on those in the future. I also love the idea of thinking about what somebody in the actual year in which these books takes place would take of it, reading it then, much like, you know, how we felt reading 1984, you know, in the 80s and 90s, thinking, oh, how interesting, that's what they thought 1984 would feel like, and how is it different, and how is it the same? Well, and also reading 1984 when it came out in 1949, and right. knowing that it's reflecting on some of the things in your own, uh, in your own world, you know, one of the 
interesting things. I study the reception of 1984 a lot. And it's very interesting, particularly when you're seeing high school and college age students in the modern US reading it, how many elements of 1984 they don't realize aren't really fiction. They are satires of real institutions that were present during wartime Britain uh, that Orwell was commenting on, but that they think of as an invented thing. You know, so Winston Smith goes off to work every day at the Ministry of Truth. Orwell's wife went off to work every day at the Ministry of Information to spend her day censoring other people's mail. This wasn't fiction. It just worked differently. I think that's an interesting way that writers can engage with fiction because, you know, we can hold there's fiction, you know, on the shelf and it's very easy for us to dissociate from it and say, oh, that's just fiction. But often fiction has permission to comment on things in a way that nonfiction doesn't, or it's able to do it in a way that's emotionally real and impactful, even though it's not, oh, this list of actual names were used and these are the actual people that were there. I think it does have an ability to comment. And I'm wondering how it's different for you as a professor who teaches sort of the real facts, if anyone could see how many air quotes I'm throwing in this sentence. Um, and yet writing fiction, which portrays an optional future, but w which communicates truth in a different way. How is it for you to do both? And, and what do you find is more effective as a professor and what's more effective as a novelist? So fiction, I think, in terms of exploring especially history, it's one of its great robust strengths is that it lets us be more comparative. Now, it means being speculatively comparative, but it lets us ask the question, what would have happened if X weren't? as opposed to just what happened. And while as a historian, one is looking a lot at causal factors and trying to say, you know, when X occurred, the reasons X occurred were this and this and this, or more often we say that the reasons were X, Y, and Z, but I have discovered reason Q, which is also part of <laughs> why this happened and needs to be brought into our account of, uh, of, the, of the origins of this. But uh, when you're dealing with it in fiction, you can, speculate and spin out in another direction. What would have happened if X were different? What would have happened if X weren't there? And invite a comparison that in particular helps us get at the way we ascribe agency in history and in historical change. What causes things? And the meta question, the meta historical question of what causes things is one that different schools of history have different answers to and different modes of history over time have had answers. So if you go back a ways, you history was dominated by a providential model, history writing in the West, at least by a providential model and a great men model. The idea being, you know, why did the Roman Empire fall? Uh, looking at different people's accounts of why the Roman Empire fell is a fascinating one. Going from the earlier, it didn't, it just moved to Byzantium, what's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, uh, but, but, you know, you, you have a model of God made the empire to teach us about what power meant to give us a sense of his imperial glory in heaven. Then he was done teaching us that lesson, so he took it away again in order to teach us another lesson. Just as after math class, we have chemistry class. And the, you know, in, in later medieval and in earlier Renaissance history writing, it's madness to try to look for human agents behind history. Everything is providentially planned out. Uh, and then within that, you have a kind of great man model of history where particular heroic and important people who are created by God and sent into things to be his agents of either creation or destruction are what are the tools through which he works. 
uh, and this advances forward until you also have 19th century sort of great man histories, which are less providential sometimes, but much more. History is a sort of blank stage, and every so often a great man walks onto the stage and does <laughs> something, and then you have Julius Caesar, or you have Napoleon, or you have whatever is happening, and then you have a new era in history. Now, this is very different from, for example, the Marxist model of history. It says we pay attention to social class, we pay attention to wealth, we pay attention to economics. Uh, and lots of people who don't consider themselves Marxist are using Marxist history. Anytime you see someone talking about the wealth gap between rich and poor in the US right now and comparing it to the wealth gap before the French Revolution, that is Marxist history in that it's history that says one of the major causes of historical change is economics and the degree of economic tension between different social classes. But as you move further toward uh, models of decline and fall, models where we attribute causality to social factors or culture, you know, anything from Machiavelli saying that one of the things that made Rome strong was that its religion encouraged sacrificing oneself for the state and Christianity instead only encourages sacrificing yourself for God, which isn't as politically useful. Those narratives in many ways diminish human agency compared to the great man model. And so are the birth of the later model that you get of humans are merely cogs in the machine. History is this vast set of gears grinding on in which we don't have any meaningful agency. Mm. And the question of how to imagine change, how to think about what does and doesn't cause change and what our actions do and don't have the power to do is a big meta question of history that I try to approach in my classes because, yes, I'm teaching the Italian Renaissance and I'm excited for my students to know who Petrarch is, but much more important is for my students to know how to think about history and how to use that time period as a case study for thinking more broadly about what agency do humans have. So to narrow in on your question about uh, the way I teach versus my uh, fiction, I do use fiction in the classroom and every year I do an Italian Renaissance class in which a big part of it in the middle is a simulation of the papal election of 1492. And this takes two weeks and each of the students is a different participant in that election. And some of them are cardinals who are trying campaigning to become Pope. Some of them are kings who are trying to manipulate the election from a distance. Some of them are unimportant secretaries who, uh, who don't have political power on, in any legal sense, but who are in the room where it happens and have an enormous ability to influence the outcome. And then after they elect a pope, they have a war. And every year we run it, every year the outcomes are different. And then we have a discussion where we compare it to the real events and to and talk about what was the same, what was different, what were you guys able to prevent or cause, what were you not able to prevent or cause. So for example, there's always a war. The peace faction always fails. But the war is very different different times, not different in scale usually. It's usually a war of about the same size because all of the powers in Europe were incentivized to have war, but who is allied with whom and what they uh, invade and what gets destroyed is different. Um, so we look at this in a sort of a model between the giant grinding gears model and the great men who determine the course of history model, uh, often using this simile of a, this was a moment when war was gonna happen. This is a moment where there's a dam, the dam is full to bursting and the dam is going to break and there's going to be a flood. But the different people are digging channels that will determine where the flood water goes and what exactly is destroyed and what exactly is saved is determined by individual 
human actions who shape the foundation of what the next phase after the flood is going to look like. Uh, so by using fiction in the classroom and then saying, okay, here was the real historical outcome, here was our outcome, that comparative helps us think about agency and think about and understand why the real events happened the way they did. That's amazing. And I think this kind of process could be something you could use to write fiction. Look at a major event and think, okay, what was happening? What were the forces at play? And how could they be changed? How could you tweak one small thing? Or if you push something in one different area, how would everything unfold differently? And of course, this is there is a whole tradition of using history this way. Mm -hmm. um, but you've done it so far as to set it completely in the future. Right. And I think it's a beautiful way to start a story. Yeah, and to not set it in the future by transplanting the same events in a different version in the future. Because you have, you know, wonderful things that take, you know, the Byzantine Empire and set it in space, uh, like the wonderful Arkady Martin book, A, a Memory Called Empire, which is coming out soon, I hope. Is it out? I don't remember. <laughs> but you have advanced we'll find out. things. It's hard to, hard to keep track. Yes. Yeah, which is an awesome book, but it's doing one way of engaging with transplanting history into the future or into space, uh, another setting. Whereas what I was doing was saying, okay, let's create a whole new set of events and a whole new set of people, but use my knowledge of history to guide how I think about what's happening and what changes and who has power and who doesn't. And the fact that I've really thought about this the way a historian thinks about it changes the structure in a lot of ways that people comment on, but don't often quite see exactly why. So for example, where narrative agency lies in the text is mirrored with my own sense of where narrative agency lies in real history, which is to say, there are some characters that we're following who are very central and very well known and who take important actions that have consequences for what happens. But a lot of what happens is also caused by there's suddenly a riot in this place and the general public active in this place is now where the agency lies. Or this person who none of the other characters have met but exists in this world and suddenly did something. Uh, and we weren't tracking on this person before. They have come kind of out of nowhere, which is the way real histories work. Right? You're re reading a real history and suddenly halfway through a person shows up and you're like, what? Where did they come from? <laughs> Yeah, it fits through if you were imagining the novelist who's coming up with the plot of the French Revolution. Napoleon comes out of nowhere. There's no setup for this. It's a terrible piece of writing from the perspective of a traditional novel in which you expect all the characters to be well and flow along. So one of the challenges I face in setting up the book is that sometimes I'm going to displace the narrative agency and say, you know what? No one that we have met is the agent controlling things right now. Every single person that we've met so far is now powerless in the hands of the large social forces that are moving. And I have to make that feel satisfying to the reader because that's the way real history works and that I wanted to get across. You know, one question people sometimes ask about the books is, we're seeing all of these people who are members of the political elite. Are we ever gonna get to see members of the general public get to do things? And then I'll point out, all of the big things that happen in the entire second half of book two are the members of the political elite being utterly powerless in the face of what the general public is doing. Right. And that is often how real historical change, especially when there's going to be a major upheaval, is shaped. 
Uh, but when you're living in the moment, you don't yet have the individual person whose name will later be picked out by textbooks to be called the leader of the popular uprising. You have just what looks like a popular uprising who, which, whose shape is difficult to articulate. So I try to portray that. But the funny part of it is because the characters through whom we're watching it are the powerless political leaders, it still feels to readers as if the political leaders are the ones with agency just because they're the ones we're watching. But we're watching them literally sit in a room watching a television where the real action is what's happening on the screen. So this is obviously, to everyone listening, an extremely complex narrative with many layers, many moving parts, many elements, an entirely different world, social structure, religious system. If we can get kind of really technical here for a second, mm -hmm. how did you organize all of the thinking you had to do in order to keep track of these details and build this world? I mean, in my head, I, as I'm reading, I'm picturing like a Game of Thrones style, like map, like a 3D <laughs> map with little figures getting moved around as to where they are. And it feels very dramatic, but I'm sure that's maybe not how you actually did it. So I'm interested in how you tracked who each character was, where they were, how the society was built. How did you do that kind of world building? So in the earlier stage where I'm actually building and populating the world, I'm just keeping track of stuff in my mind, uh, coming up with characters, coming up with cool things that could be in the world, thinking through how those things would combine and interact with each other if they were in the same setting. Um, but when it came to the, the last six months before sitting down to write the first book, then I do very thorough outlining. And then there I do have spreadsheets, which remind, keep track of exactly where in the world each character is at any given time, timelines of the entire history of the world from the present to 2454, uh, with rises and falls of dynasties and lots of political information far beyond what we actually see in the book. Uh, and uh, and then created a chapter by chapter outline of all four books and did a lot of uh, uh, preparatory work. For example, uh, taking the outline and making each character's name be highlighted in bright color mm. and then zooming out on my screen so that the entire outline fits on one page and is so tiny that you can't read the text. But what you can do is see, oh, there's no green from here to there. Uh, is it intentional that I'm having that character not appear for that entire long time? Or, wow, there's a whole lot of green in like five chapters in a row here. Do I want to paste that differently and structure it differently so that that character is more spread out? Uh, so that kind of tool for finessing through the, um, the making sure that the different characters get the degree of attention that I want and that when a particular character is very present or conversely very absent, that's always intentional. Uh, and then I do have a map. It's a modified Google map, uh, and it has pins in every city with a population over 10 million with discussions of the uh, relative ratios of the political groups uh, present in that city and some notes on its history, plus some pins on other areas that are that don't have a city that big, but I wanted to make sure I knew what was happening in this region or this country. Uh, though the fruits of that map building are uh, a little more visible in the later books, later two books that are I love this. I, I wonder, has the has the publisher asked once you finish the fourth book if there might be a coffee table book forthcoming with all of this information plotted out? I haven't. I think that'll depend entirely on how well the fourth book does when the series comes out, because that's what determines whether uh, something But other people have asked if I would share some of those materials online. We will see what I do. 
it's oh. amazing. That's amazing. I love the bright color trick is brilliant. Yeah, because I think that holding a world that large is a pretty amazing task to to do as you're writing it. And mm -hmm. I, I'm not surprised that it's like six months leading up to writing that it would take yeah. to do all of that work. That's six months of outlining. Well, and four and a half years of world building. Yes, I know. I was like, I'm, I'm sure that there was a lot more than that over time because yeah. there's it's just so thoroughly thought through and so fully considered. Yeah. And by outlining all four, it means I know I'm setting up the themes from the beginning that I want to set up. Absolutely. So one of the things you talked about earlier on was this concept of utopia versus dystopia. And it brings me to something else we wanted to discuss, which is another project entirely that you're working on with former guest Cory Doctorow mm -hmm. regarding censorship, which I can see how that theme is of interest in what you're writing and sort of the considerations of what people are allowed to do and, and how the government decides what they're allowed to do and not do. But this is censorship kind of in our world, outside the world of the book. And I'm wondering right. if you can talk a little bit about the work you're doing there, because I think that's of huge interest to anyone who's thinking about writing and publishing. Yeah, so Corey and I also in partner with another historian called Adrian Johns, who's a historian of science and of printing history are working on this big project called Censorship and Information Control During Information Revolutions, which is trying to look at how every time there's an innovation in information technology, there are consequent innovations in censorship and in information control. Information control meaning things that do control and limit the way information moves, but aren't necessarily intended the way censorship is intended. So for example, copyright is an example of something which we definitely can say is information control that sometimes has the same effect as censorship in that it means a book can be here and it can't be there. Uh, so the two are not fully separable, but the two are not identical to each other. And we're looking at the interplay of both. So right now in the digital world, we're in the middle of a big revolution in censorship and in information control in which big corporations and small corporations and governments and uh, creators are all trying to create new ways to control and monetize and move and own information in order uh, to deal with the digital world, which is making it possible for information to move around in a lot of new ways. And most people are sort of improvising this out of their knowledge of books or their knowledge of computers or out of thin air, basically. But this isn't the first time that a major information technology has caused this kind of revolution. The goal of the project is to get historians to work on the dissemination of the printing press and other earlier information technologies together to talk to people who work on the digital revolution. Because there are a lot of parallels between the patterns that we see and what happened when people were trying to regulate the printing press and the patterns we see when people are trying to regulate the digital world. This is born out of me and Cory Doctorow sitting around at conventions, uh, science fiction conventions, talking to each other. And he would describe something that Microsoft or Apple or the European Union was doing. And I would say, that's exactly like what Paris did in 1625. Uh, and if you compare it to what Amsterdam was doing, then this other thing was going on. And we kept finding more and more rich parallels. And we thought, this is great. We should find a way to not only do more of this, but to share it with people. So we have a grant and we also have a Kickstarter we used to fund the project, so crowdsourced. Uh, and we are uh, using those funds to bring together, I think it's 26 now, experts who work on different 
questions related to censorship and information control at different points in history to have discussions with each other and film those discussions and put them online. So we've already filmed the first three sessions and we're gonna film another uh, six and share those uh, online with the public as both videos and sort of podcast audio structured uh, material. And each uh, session has a theme and we try to pair people who work on the present with people who work on the past. So for example, this week we're bringing in uh, a person who works on digital information copyright and a person who works on the origins of copyright law. Or, oh, sorry, no. This week we're bringing in people who work on ownership of the news. That's right, this is ownership of the news week. So we're bringing in Will Slaughter, who works on the very first efforts to own and copyright news in the print pamphlet period uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries to talk to uh, Siva, who works on ownership of digital news. And then we're doing other weeks on things like uh, portraying trial documents. So bringing together a person who works on the Inquisition trial records from the uh, 15th and 16th and 17th centuries with somebody who works on Guantanamo Bay interrogation records and the way those have been excavated and redacted by U.S. talk about how the preparation of documents changes um and we're filming all of this and sharing them with everyone this is amazing and i think it's important for people to hear because i certainly have had this experience of looking at news and looking at things that are happening and forgetting that there is a context for all of this and that i mean the phrase history repeats itself is a terrible cliche for a reason and yet we will look at news or look at things that are happening and think my god how could this happen and not have any sense of there being any container for that experience or any precedent or any way to handle it or think about it. And this project to me is a way to kind of get some context and to have a case study for what happened before and say, well, do we like that result? Did that result work for us? Is there another way we could do this? Rather than feeling like we're starting from scratch all the time because it's the internet. When Really, that's just a new version of, of an expanded form of communication, which has happened all the time. It also helps us see patterns and through those patterns, see what's genuinely new and what is merely a new iteration of something that's happened repeatedly before. And that's useful because it tells us, you know, this is the X factor, the thing that doesn't resemble any earlier such revolution. This is what's going to make the outcomes here be unlike the past and unpredictable, as opposed to these other things, which felt as if they were new, but actually have happened before. And we can look at how they were dealt with before and what some of their consequences were. Yeah, in some ways, it's sort of like what you do with your students in, you know, replaying that trial and seeing ways in which it can happen differently. This is a way to say, okay, here's a previous case. Let's look at what's happening now. And let's see where it could go, depending on where, which way that happens. Well, and, and a big part of it is also getting at the fact, the ways we imagine censorship and information control and the ways the real patterns differ from those. Uh, so one of the outcomes of this project, in addition, to, in addition to the videos and to a book, which is a collection of essays by all the participants reflecting on the issues, is uh, a book I'm going to write called Why People Censor, an Illustrated History from the Inquisition to the Internet which is trying to get at the patterns of why people actually censor as opposed to our models of uh, how we imagine people censoring and, um, uh, and, and the patterns of what gets censored and by whom. 
So Orwell is very much at the heart of this and the Inquisition is as well because Orwell's 1984 and the ways we talk about and describe and imagine the Inquisition, those two things really dominate the word censorship and what it means and what we think we're on the lookout for when we're on the lookout for censorship. But the censorship that Orwell depicts is very unlike almost all real censorship. Orwell's Ministry of Truth is this extremely well-organized, centralized, well-funded, top-down authority that has a multi-decade plan about how it's going to gradually transform human thought and language in this is step 27 and this is step 28 toward its grand goal. And that is never how censorship operates. It always uh, spontaneously improvised in response to a perceived crisis. Oh no, X is happening, quick. We have to defend our power authority, our people against this thing. Let's come up with a way to censor it. Oh, we already had this tool for censoring some other thing. Let's repurpose that for censoring this new thing to solve this crisis. So I'm also almost always underfunded compared to what it would want and under manpower so that it can't watch everyone the way Orwell imagines. You would have to employ the entire civilization exclusively to surveil the rest of the civilization to do that. Uh, censorship is always a few people trying to figure out what they can do to police many people and trying to spread their man hours in different ways uh, to make up for that. Um, and censorship also is often bottom up or, or grassroots rather than top down that the, the demand for the censorship of something will come from a public outcry. This is dangerous, we want to silence this. Uh, and and the, the public will take the lead, forcing government to follow instead of the other way around. So there are just all of these differences between Orwellian censorship and the many plural different kinds of censorship that affect us and that affect historical reality. And I wanna bring out these patterns to show how Orwell is on the one hand invaluable for the robust vocabulary he gives us for thinking and talking about censorship and giving us terms like Big Brother and we have always been at war with Eurasia and <laughs> the chocolate ration has just been increased and all of these tools that we use and that the instant something in the news reminds us of one of them we say it and everyone in the room recognizes it what it is and we all affirm that we need to oppose it because Orwell has given us that vigilance but he doesn't give us the same vigilance against forms of censorship that don't resemble what he describes. But I'm trying to describe them so that we can explain about them as well. Amazing. So when is that book coming out? Not that you don't have anything else to do with your time. <laughs> well, right now I'm concentrating on the fourth Terry Ignota book, but that's going to be my big uh, academic project, not this school year, but next school year. So the 2019-2020 year. And I hope to finish the book by the end of that year so that it will be out the following year. Uh, who knows? Because life is unpredictable. And you know, indeed, the, the fourth Terra Ignota book is late already. Other than Orwell's, I, I have two little micro recommended readings uh, if people are interested in the censorship question. You know, some of it is that I've been sharing things online uh, and uh, and so on. But there's an amazing essay called by George Orwell called on the, called The Prevention of Literature. This was written a couple years before 1984, and it's just a couple of pages, but he's talking about what he thinks are the threats to freedom of the press uh, and so on in you know 1946 i think is when he wrote it or 1947 and it's a 
amazing how many of the sentences, if you just took them out of context, people would swear you were writing about today, <laughs> about the exact specific crisis of press that we perceive ourselves to be in, in the Trump administration and Brexit sphere. Uh, it's so similar to exactly what he was describing then. Uh, so it's an amazing essay for realizing, and I've been tweeting a bunch of sentences from it and we'll probably share some more as well. Uh, to remind us that a lot of the things that feel like a crisis may indeed be a crisis, but it's not a unique crisis. But we can look to the past to see how it was resolved elsewhere and elsewhere. Uh, but the other is that I just love the blog at the Censorship Office of New Zealand. Uh, so New Zealand and the USA as former British colonies uh, at root had very similar legal systems as they were born. But the USA has a prohibition on state censorship, right? Our First Amendment, Congress may make no law, et cetera. New Zealand doesn't have that restriction. So New Zealand has official state censorship and an official chief censor of New Zealand. And their equivalent of the moving ratings that we have are done by this, not by a private group. Uh, you can go to their blog and they post about everything they rate and why they gave it the rating that they did and the things they choose to ban and why they choose to ban them. And you can look up the latest, you know, Venom movie, the Deadpool movie, and see what the state censors say about it. And what I love about it is that it's a glimpse of what censorship would probably be like in the U.S. if we didn't have the First Amendment. Now, the U.S. does have censorship. It's just that most of our censorship is paralegal censorship because Congress may make no law. So as a society, we come up with other ways to censor and other kinds of and if you look back over the 150 year history of New Zealand and the US, there are all these moments of crisis that affected both countries at the same time. And at the same time, the public demanded to censor the same thing. So the Red Scare hit both at the same time. Uh, the invention of talkies films and the desire to censor bad words in films hit both at the same time. The 1930s through 50s comics craze hit both at the same time. And in every case, New Zealand created a state office to deal with this. And the US created a non-state method to do with it, whether this was for the Red Scare McCarthyist blacklisting, or whether this was for uh, rude words in films, the theoretically optional film ratings board, which nonetheless, every film has to go through if they want to be in cinema. So it isn't the state, but it has the same reach as the state. Uh, or whether this is the Comics Code Authority, which was created to censor comics, again, by popular demand, and then the government looked into the question but couldn't do anything, but then this theoretically optional uh, system was created. So over and over, when you compare the two side by side, you can see how the U.S. figured out workarounds in order to censor what it wanted to censor, while New Zealand censored it directly, and then what the differences between those two are. Because if you're writing a, <clears throat> an adult comic book in the 19... 60s in the US, you go bankrupt because you can't get it past the Comics Code Authority, whereas in New Zealand, you go to jail. So the consequences are different while targeting the same work. And one of the things about having it be the state is on the one hand, state punishment like prison is in many ways more severe and life destroying than bankruptcy, though both are severe and life destroying. But when it's the government, the government is to some degree accountable to its people, which means the censorship is more accountable. So, for example, while New Zealand's movie censors post about everything they're doing and explain their criteria very clearly and have a specific list of we may censor this, we may not censor that, 
the US Films Rating Board, which isn't government and doesn't have any kind of oversight, is very inconsistent in its uh, in its ratings and gives favor to the big movie and uh, big movie studios over small movie studios and has been caught many times lying about who's actually on the board and censoring material that wasn't what they said they were censoring uh, because it's much more opaque because it doesn't have that required government transparency. So both forms of censorship, official censorship and unofficial censorship, or state censorship and uh, civilian censorship, you might say, uh, have different strengths and weaknesses. Also, the New Zealand censors has a really creepy logo with a big eye watching you. It's so surreal. Well, we'll put a link to the page in the show notes so everyone else can see it also. This is so fascinating. So I'm glad we have follow-up reading to enjoy after this amazing conversation. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. It's really been a joy speaking to you. It's, it's a pleasure. I love talking about these things. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.